this story of Joseph, uh, the problem is that we, the story is 13 chapters. We're not going to hit all of them today. And I know that some of you are excited about that because we do have the barbecue planned, and so we want to get to that eventually. But the, the reality is we, we interject into the story in Genesis 45 is the big reveal. Joseph, who was uh, lost to his brothers because of their own sin, is actually revealing himself to his brothers to say, I am Joseph. I'm the one that you sold into slavery. So to, to get to that point, you have some, some highlights that we just need to remember about what happens with Joseph. I already talked to the kids because we read it in Genesis 37 this week that Joseph is, is born to, to Rachel and Rachel didn't, wasn't able to have kids. She, she had been begging God for a son and her sister had been having all these kids and so Jacob is the father of many children, 12 sons. And these 12 sons then become the, the tribes of Israel. But Rachel is begging God and, and begging her husband for this son that finally God gives to her. And this son is Joseph. Genesis 30, 22-24 say, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the gift that she has in Joseph. And so we, we see Joseph born, uh, and then we pick up the story years later where Joseph is going to his brothers and checking on them in the field. And as he goes and tells them about what's going on, he, he, he tells them that he had a dream. The favorite son had a dream, and in this dream, he dreams that he's standing and, and all of them bow down to worship him. Needless to say, they did not take that uh, very well. They got really angry to the point where they said they wanted to kill him. And then there's another dream that he has that, that actually personifies even his, his parents bowing down to him. And Jacob, who uh, is his father, also kind of is like, wait a second, but, but he hides it in his heart and he remembers it. And so in Genesis 37, we, we see that Joseph is the beloved son of his father. He's a dreamer. He has the two dreams. He, they cause him to be hated by his brothers. And then what we get is the, the brothers are so angry that they plot to kill him. Like, bro, like brothers, flesh and blood, are so angry out of jealousy that they would plot to kill their brother. In 18 verses 18 through 20, it says, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. So they plot to kill him. In the end, uh, one of the brothers uh, relents and he thinks that maybe we should just sell him into slavery. So they end up selling him to some slavers that come by that are going to a different country to take him away. So that he'll be gone. So that he'll be out of their lives and he won't be this problem, this dreamer. And maybe they can foil the dream that he had. Maybe they can destroy it. Maybe it won't come true. Which is what they're hoping for. And so we see that Joseph is sold into slavery, which is horrible. 
A, his brothers are trying to kill him, and instead of killing him, he's actually sold into slavery where he has no rights, no possessions, no nothing. And we, we see this and we're like, man, that's, those circumstances are just horrific. I can't imagine being in those circumstances. And yet what we see, what's, what's evident in Joseph's life, is that no matter the circumstances, he continues to trust in the God that he knows to the point where those around him know he trusts in God. He's sold into uh, this, the household of Potiphar. Potiphar is the, the captain of the guard in Egypt. And so he needs people in his house that would take care of his house while he maintains the business of the, being the captain of the guard. And so um, Joseph is in his house. And what we see, what God gives us in Genesis, is that he found favor there. How did he find favor? Well, because somehow... Potiphar was able to connect the fact that that Joseph was loved by God, that he was blessed, that he was anointed, that there was something about him that was different. Maybe it was just in the way that he went about his business. Although when you go about your business, that can be attributed to a lot of different things. Maybe you're just a kinder person. Maybe you just woke up on the right side of bed every day. right? We all know kind people. And we're thankful for them. But the reality is that there's something about Joseph that actually has indicated that he is favored by God. It's not circumstance. It's not he's just a kind person. There's something that's going on in him. And I bet, because we see it later on, it's that he's explicit about where his help comes from. Where his refuge comes from. Where the blessings in his life come from. Even as he's been tried to be killed by his brother... Sold into slavery like he is still exalting the Lord. Because this is what his master sees in Genesis 39.3. His master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. There's There's an acknowledgement in that moment. There's a worship of the Lord God. The one who is in control. It's... It has to be an explicit thing that Joseph is making clear to those around him. Because otherwise it's just circumstance. Otherwise we can chalk it up to all kinds of things. But his master saw that the Lord was with him. We see it later on. He's explicit as he uh, is tempted by Potiphar's wife. And if you know the story, um, Potiphar's wife saw Joseph and wanted him. It says in Chapter 39, verses 7 through 10. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. That's the reality. Joseph is is just stating the facts in that moment. But this next statement he makes is, is what is it that would drive him to say no to this woman and to, to honor his master? It says this, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Everything in Joseph's life is grounded in this foundational truth that God has both blessed in what he sees immediately as blessing 
and He has blessed him in what he doesn't see as blessing. Like, how can my brothers hating me and throwing me into a pit and selling me into slavery be a blessing? How can me being sold into this household be a blessing? And yet, he rests in his, his stature as created. And we've talked a lot about that. Why would he call him Lord so many times? He knows that he is God, the creator of all things, the one who is sovereign and in control. Therefore, he doesn't have to strive to be in control. He can rest in what God is doing. And so, Joseph is is declaring this even in the midst of temptation. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. If you know the rest of the story, there comes a moment where she's so aggressive in her pursuit of him that she grabs uh, the cloth that's around him, he just runs because he's, he, he's just not going to have anything to do with it. And then she builds this lie that he was trying to be with her. That gets him cast out of this best of circumstances that he can be in as a slave. And so he goes to prison and he's wrongfully in prison. Some of us love those stories of, of uh, the, the wrongfully in prison that in the end they get their retribution. They get dealt with rightly and, and the bad guys get dealt with and, and punished. Right? There's something in us that says, man, that's good. That's good that the evil get punished and the righteous get rewarded. And, and that's by God's design. We've talked a lot about that, that. That God, a good king, will bless and He will punish the wicked. Like He will bless the, the righteous and He will punish the wicked. That's a good king. We want that. And yet, then we realize, man, we're wicked. And so we, we balk against that. But what we're seeing here is this wrongfully imprisoned Joseph still trusting in God. It says, as we continue on in chapter 39, 21 through 23, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he... He was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Man, you just have this this ongoing cycle in Joseph's life. He's, He's faithful to the Lord in whatever circumstance he's put in, and it's recognized by those around him. And yet something happens that... The evil would, would come and would attack him, whether it's in his brothers or in Potiphar's wife, and it would destroy what, the rapport that he had with the people that he was with. And then he would go to a new place in bad circumstances, and God would continue to, to bless him. There's a contentment that he has no matter what the circumstances, that he knows where he's where he's supposed to be. Because God is Lord, God is sovereign, God is in control. We finally see that, Jesus, that Joseph is an interpreter of dreams, both to the baker and the cupbearer as he's in prison. Genesis 40, verse 8, they said to him, We have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Like, everything that he says and does is grounded in who God is, that he's Lord, that he's in control. And so he can make a bold statement like, God's in charge of dreams. Tell me your dreams. God, God is the one who has created all things. So 
So why would I not be able to interpret them if I am a child of God? Now, I'm not saying that everyone is given the gift of interpretation, but I'm saying that, that there's this grounding that Joseph has that he knows, listen, God is God of even dreams. Tell me your dreams. And then he interprets them. What he interprets is true. The cupbearer will be restored into his place and even honored, and the baker will, will, be, uh, will be killed. And both those things actually happen in a couple days' time. The cupbearer forgets about Joseph, though. Leaves him in jail. And it says for two more years, Joseph rots in prison. And then Pharaoh has a dream, and the cupbearer remembers, oh yeah, I know a guy who trusts in God, who trusts in the Lord, and he believes that God is even over dreams. Maybe you should talk to that guy. And so Pharaoh has Joseph come, and then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he was about to do. Pharaoh has two dreams. Those dreams point to uh, things that would come, uh, a seven-year time of plenty, and then a seven-year famine. And so then, um, because he can interpret the dreams, Joseph gets promoted to what would be like a, a, a vizier or a secretary of state or maybe a, a prime minister of some sort, second in command only to, to Pharaoh. And so he's in charge of gathering all the grain gathering all the food while there's plenty, and being prepared for the time of famine that would come. And so he does that, and he's faithful in that task. And so that's the story of Joseph that we have. And I I know we're kind of just moving through it real fast, but hopefully it might be familiar to some of you. I would encourage you this week, go back. Like if, if any of that intrigues you, go back and look at it. There's a reason why God has given us his word. It points to his beauty, his sovereignty, like the way that he is working all of this out is so magnificent, it's even hard to believe. It's the best story you can dive into. And that's what we're doing through this series. We're trying to dive into this story, this history of redemption that's going to go all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And so we want to read together, we want to encourage one another, and we want to see these stories Today I want us to look at two aspects of Joseph. Joseph as rescuer and Joseph as reconciler. Joseph as rescuer and Joseph as reconciler. Um, as As Randy was reading our passage this morning, you begin to see that Joseph has this ultimate trust in God that it's God who is doing this miraculous rescue. Verse 5 of chapter 45, it says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. If all you see is the circumstance that Joseph is in second, second in command of the largest empire at that time, um, you're, you're missing a big part of the story. You're missing how he has trusted in a God who has brought him from the very lowest of lows to the very highest of highs. He has a trust that is non-circumstantial. It doesn't matter 
whether he's in, in plenty or in want, he trusts that God is in control. And so when we come into the story, we have to, to begin to understand that because otherwise it's easy when you're at a place of, of power, when you're at a, at a good position, when your circumstances are good, to be like, man, God's just, God's good all the time. He's really doing it for me right now. It's when you're at that place where you're like, God, I don't know what you're doing because this feels broken and it feels hurt and, and, and I'm lost that we really have a hard time trusting in God. And yet we've seen that Joseph, as he's pursued by his brothers, trying to be killed, he trusts in God. As he's sold into slavery, he's trusting in God. And so don't let the circumstances of Joseph's life dictate how you think uh, that his trust is in God because things are good. The facts are that there's a famine that is taking place in this moment in time that's killing many people. People are dying because of a famine that is taking place. People are, are dying, and, and they're dying in such a way that, that people are flocking to Egypt because they hear that in Egypt they have some food. And so Jacob, Joseph's father, and his family hear this, and he sends his brothers to go and get food, and, and the story plays out that they come to Joseph, and Joseph recognizes his brothers, and he sends them back to go get Benjamin, the youngest brother, and, and bring him, and, and there's, a, there's a dialogue that takes place because Jacob it loves Benjamin. He loved Joseph, he loves Benjamin, and he doesn't want to let Benjamin go because he's afraid he won't get him back just like he didn't get Joseph back. And so there's this, this drama that's playing out. And yet the brothers come back with Benjamin and then Joseph reveals himself and tells them that he's his brother. People are dying and Jacob's family was desperate for rescue and for deliverance and for salvation. You see, Joseph is God's ordained means of salvation for his family. What's funny is we look back and we say, yeah, well, they knew that. He had the dream. <laughs> they would, that, that he would be the one that would be elevated and that would rescue them. And yet, they, they were in their sin and in their brokenness, they rebelled against him and, and threw him away into slavery. And yet, this is what God has orchestrated to save his people, Jacob's family. He orchestrates this redemption through Joseph, the beaten, the despised, and the betrayed brother. I'm going to say it again. He orchestrates their redemption through Joseph, the beaten, the despised, and the betrayed brother. Now, if you're saying, hold on, something there is starting to ring, it's because this story given to us in the very beginning of the Bible, at the end of Genesis, is the story in the lens that, that's being crafted for us to see all of the rest of Scripture through. That there's going to be one who comes who's going to be beaten and despised and betrayed. And he's going to be the rescue that you and I need. Genesis, like the very beginning, God is showing you this is the story. This is the plot line of a God who rescues and redeems his people. He's going to do it through one who's betrayed, beaten, killed. 
And so he does. The, the part that we don't read between uh, Genesis 45 and Genesis 50 is that Jacob and his family uh, are brought to Egypt. They live in the land of Goshen. They live like they were going to die, and now they're living in the land of Goshen. They, they're blessed. The legacy continues on. And, and Joseph is very clear. Like God is longing to, to save a remnant of his people. And again, that remnant piece is going to echo throughout all of Scripture. We saw it in verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Because the story isn't done in Egypt. The story continues into moving into Canaan, the promised land, into building uh, the temple, into being exiled and, and scattered throughout all the earth, and then to being brought back. And then we see that the story continues all the way to Jesus. The story of rescue. But in this moment, there's an actual rescue that takes place for God's people. If they were going to die, God orchestrates by his sovereignty and by his power, to put Joseph in a position where he can rescue and save them, and now they live. That's miraculous. This is, we're talking orders of magnitude that um, you have a, a very small family, and God has orchestrated in the largest empire of that time to have one of those that were cast out be the second in position so that he can rescue them and save them. What's crazy is that he not only rescues his family, he actually rescues all of Egypt because if they had not had Joseph there to interpret the dreams, they wouldn't have known that, hey, we need to be storing up for the seven years so that when the seven years of famine hit, we don't all die. And so Joseph is not only the rescuer and the redeemer for the chosen people. He's actually the rescuer and redeemer for Egypt. For those who, are, who we find are against God, the only reason that they would have life is because God has ordained it through the work of His chosen one, His anointed one. As miraculous and amazing as the physical deliverances that takes place through Joseph, the greater miracle might be what is done in his heart. This reconciliation piece that takes place. I get mad at people when they, uh, when, they wrong, when they cut me off on the road. And I don't forgive them. Like I just hold on to that all the way until I never have to think about them again. Listen, maybe you're not like that. But I, I guarantee that all of us can find a place where we have been wronged. And we hold on to those things. The, the miracle here is what is, one of the miracles here is what is taking place in Joseph's heart. As he is reconciled to his brothers. These brothers that wanted to kill him, they were so jealous of him, so angry at him. He's coming to check on them in the fields where they're watching their sheep. And they're so angry that he had these dreams and these visions, and that he's been showered by his father and loved by his father, and, and they feel like they haven't been, that they would plot to kill him. It, as far as we can tell in Scripture, Joseph 
doesn't do those, those horrific sins that you and I see many of the other um, patriarchs and many of the other men of, that, that God uses to, to bring about redemption and rescue and restoration. Like, he, he doesn't do those horrible sins. We don't know for sure. We do know that he, he wasn't perfect. But God uses him and actually has him walk in righteousness in all of the ways that, where he could have been tempted into sin. And so really what his brothers are hating is, is the fact that he's good, the fact that he's righteous, the fact that he does the right things and loves his father. They have no reason to hate him. And yet they hate him so much that they would throw him into this pit, kill him, lie to their father about it. So that the father who loves him won't even come and search for him because they've said that he's dead. Like the, the, the amount of wrong done by these brothers to Joseph is more extreme than you and I can imagine. Some of us have been wronged deeply. I don't want to take anything away from the hurt that some of you might be experiencing. But what I do want to point to is the fact that Joseph is wronged by his brothers. And now he's in a place where vengeance could be his. He, he could punish them for the wrong that they had done to him. He could just withhold and say, listen, you made the bed that, that you're sleeping in. You just go back to Jacob and you guys figure it out yourself. That wouldn't have even been all that bad. But instead, he comes and, and he, he reveals that he's their brother. And he loves them. And we see this reconciliation that takes place. At the end of our reading in 45, it says in verse 13, You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. That's crazy. That's crazy. How does he just gloss over the fact that his life has been ruined? He... He went through all of these things because these brothers, in their selfishness, in their arrogance, in their jealousy, ruined his life. He missed out on decades with his father who loved him and cared for him. And yet he comes and he, and he forgives them, embraces them. Not, not at a distance, but he brings them in and he weeps on their necks. Like, that's crazy. How does that happen? How can he forgive when he's been wronged? It goes back to the same piece that we've just continued to press in. Joseph has this deep understanding that God is in control. God is in control. God is sovereign even over his brothers in their evil, ambitious, jealous, actions. God is sovereign over them. If that's true, then who does Joseph have to blame except God himself? 
Like if that's true, that God is sovereign over this broken mess, then who can Joseph blame in that moment? And so he doesn't. He doesn't blame God. He trusts God. He continues to say, you, you are my righteousness. You are my, my portion. You are the one that I need. God has done this thing. He's given me blessing. And He's also worked this evil in my brothers. Or allowed this evil to be worked in my brothers' hearts, right? This sin. And we see it as we look at chapter 50, which was the last of our reading. This idea that Joseph, how does he forgive? How does he embrace his brothers who have wronged him so? It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate, sorry, in chapter 50, verse 15, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. They're thinking like I am. (laughs) Maybe he just did that because he knows his dad loves him and, and he loves dad so much. And so he's actually just waiting. He's, he's waiting for that moment where he gets to exact his revenge, even now. And so they're saying, man, Jacob's dead. We might be in big trouble here, guys. We need to go find out and, and talk, to, talk to Joseph. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave, us, gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of your father. Joseph wept. It says Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Like the, like the, the idea that they would not know how much he's forgiven them. The idea that they would still be afraid of his retribution and his vengeance causes him to weep. And, and like the, it's so heartfelt and so true, the reconciliation that has taken place between still wrongful brothers, still brothers that are not seeing things clearly. It's not like they fixed everything and now they can be totally good with one another. And yet you and I, like we expect that. The only way that I'm going to be reconciled to you is when you're made right and I'm made right. And I'm already made right, so we just got to wait on you to get me made right. No, in their brokenness, God has reconciled the brothers to Joseph. To such a degree that he would weep and he would embrace them and he would love them. And then it goes on. How can this be? His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Deep-seated belief. God is in control. And I'm not Him. Even though now I'm in a position of power, uh, with the ability to leverage all of the might of Egypt against you, I am not God. God has done this thing. He is sovereign. He is in control. And He has worked this out that you and I would be restored to one another. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
understatement of understatements. Comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Like he, he embraced them, loved them, took care of them, saved them from death. Yeah, he was kind to them. <laughs> the only reason they would have life is because of his kindness. As this resonates with us, this is true for this people many thousands of years ago that they are rescued because of God's sovereign plan to raise up a savior, to raise up one who would save them and rescue them from death. Why are we being given this story? In this, in this history of redemption, why is this in the first book that we would read? Why did Moses write this down? Because everything that we're supposed to see and read and understand is supposed to be seen through this same lens. We have a good God who is who has created perfection and beauty. And then in chapter 3, we see what we did with that. We thought we could be God. We said on our own, we can live. We don't need you. We could be as great as you, maybe even better. And that's been the story that continues to, to be perpetrated in our lives throughout history. We deny God. We're rebels against God. We think that we can do it ourselves. And yet God in His kindness would raise up someone to rescue us from ourselves. God has done that with His people. The, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His, his special people, His chosen people. He's raised up Joseph to save them. Now what happens is that in that salvation comes a line that continues. The promise that was made to Abraham continues because he can still, like his children are still alive. God can still make his descendants as numerous as the stars because God has done this work through Joseph. They can still enter into the promised land because they are alive and the story's not over when it should have been over. They should have been dead and yet God has saved them. And this story points us to Jesus. The fact that Joseph would be a, a rescuer and a reconciler is a, is a type, it's an image that points us to the real thing. Because after Joseph, you're going to get the same thing in Moses, one who would come and rescue his people and lead them out of brokenness and into, into, uh, out of Egypt and, and out of slavery, Right? And then you have Joshua leading the people into the promised land. You have David establishing a, a, a nation that is, that is devoted to the worship of God. Like all of these things continue to point to one who would come. They're types. They're pictures, fuzzy pictures, looking through a mirror dimly at the one who would come who would be the ultimate rescue, the ultimate salvation. You see, you and I are in the same boat that Joseph's brothers were in. We're messed up. We're broken. We have sin. We're, we don't like to say this, but we are evil. There's, there's something inside of us that, that says that we could do this better than God has done it. 
And yet the truth of all of Scripture, not just the New Testament, but all of Scripture has pointed to a God who rescues despite who we are. A God who rescues His people for His possession, for His glory. And in Ephesians, Paul tells us we were dead in our sins. But God intervened Just like He intervenes when He raises up Joseph to a place where He can rescue His people, God intervenes and God Himself comes and puts on flesh in the person of Jesus. Jesus is beaten. He's despised. He's betrayed. By both His biological family and by those who who came to know Him and trust Him and and spent a bunch of time with Him. Even those people that knew Him best betrayed Him. And He was put to death. And yet He rose again. And what we find is that in His death, we are made right. We are rescued. We are redeemed. We are reconciled to a holy God because in Jesus, He takes the punishment that you and I deserve in our sin, in our wickedness, in the way that we betray one another, in the way that we violate each other, Jesus takes our sin upon Himself on the cross. And he bears it. He bears the punishment for it, which is death. Actual death. Joseph's family is, is saved from death. You and I have been saved from the death that we deserve because Jesus bore that death for us on the cross. He has rescued. And in His rescue, He also reconciles us to a holy God. Listen, the fact that God is holy is something that you and I have glimpses of and very small understandings of. We can read all kinds of Scripture. We can uh, pray and we can begin to see God's holiness, but we do not understand how holy God is. And God's holy and we're sinful. And those two things cannot be together. And so Jesus takes our sin and our shame and reconciles us to a holy God by giving us His righteousness. And at the cross, that's what we believe happens. When we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, we say, God, I know that I'm sinful, and yet I believe that You have purchased my life. I believe that your blood has been shed and you have cleansed me of my sin and my shame. And at the cross, you actually took my sin and my shame and you gave me your righteousness. A righteousness that's better than Joseph's righteousness. A righteousness that is actually pure and obedient. You see, Jesus, as he's ta- walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples after his resurrection, he begins to teach them about like, how he fulfilled all things. He's the better Joseph. He's the better Abraham. He's the better Moses. He's the fulfillment of all of Scripture. He's what every one of these types was pointing to. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. The Son of God who has come to purchase for you and I. And yet, we read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and some of these Old Testament stories, and we're like, man, A, they're kind of weird. Like, there's some weird stuff that takes place. But do we read them in the same lens where we're looking at how do these point to Jesus? How do these stories, these old stories, point to the one who would come and do the work on the cross to save and rescue a people like you and me for His glory? 
And so today we rejoice in that. Like we see, man, Joseph, God used that guy to rescue, to restore, to save, to reconcile even like in his own heart because of his deep-seated trust that God was in control. He's reconciled to his brothers and they love one another again. You and I experience the same thing today through Jesus. We are redeemed. We are rescued. We are restored. And so when we see things in that light, like the fact that you and I have breath today is a gift. What are we doing with that gift? Are we... Are we walking in that and saying, yeah, well, I kind of deserve it. Like, I earned this breath today. Or are we seeing it as the gift of God that would say, man, God, you are so kind. You're so good. You're a great God who rescues and restores and redeems. And Lord, what would you have me do today? Like, if that's, that should be the posture of our hearts. We have been given breath that we don't deserve. What are we going to do with it? We get to go and we get to serve God. We get to be restored and reconciled to one another. Instead of harboring, we get to trust God like God's in control. And yeah, you've wronged me, but God's working even through that wrong, even through that evil for His own glory so that you and I can be made right because of what Jesus has done. And then we get to walk in that, trusting in a God who is in complete control. I hope that that would be what we take away today. Because tomorrow you might either be uh, in that position of vizier and being like, yep, life's good. Or tomorrow you might be in that pit for two years after you did all the right stuff telling that cupbearer, man, hey, here's what's going to happen. And when you get there, just remember me. And he forgets about you. And you feel like, man, I've been in this place for so long. My circumstances are rotten or my circumstances are great. Whatever it is, I pray that we would say, but I trust in a God who is in control. So much control and his plan is so good. And I know the fullness of his plan. I know that not only did he rescue his people then, but he's rescued his people through his son, Jesus. And so I trust and I sit and I wait and I'm, and I'm glad and I rejoice in that. If we're that people, it changes the way we live. It changes the way that we communicate with people. It changes the way that we're long-suffering, trusting in a God who is in control. It changes the way that we suffer. It changes the way that we rejoice, like we rejoice more fully. And all of that gives glory to a God who is worthy of it. So let's do that. We can, we can be like, yep, I'm going to go do that, but really it's the power of the Spirit that's doing all these things in us. So I pray that He would continue the work that He's begun in us. That, and and we, even as we pray that, we're like, and God is faithful to complete the good work that He's begun. So we should have joy. Rejoice in that today. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the story of Joseph. God, a story that gives us a, a way to look at things, seeing that you are in control of both the highs and the lows, the, the deep, dark places and the, the joyful, rejoicing places. Lord, you are God. And you are redeeming. And you are saving you are rescuing. Thank you for rescuing your people. Thank you for reconciling Joseph to his brothers. God, what a gift that we would be able to read that thousands of years later and say, man, God, you, you can do what only you can do. 
the miraculous, the supernatural, the restoring of broken relationship. Lord, I pray that today that, that those of us in here who, who even as we're hearing this story and thinking about things, we, it, it just reminds us of a relationship that's broken. God, I pray that we'd hold fast to the truth that you, the story's not over, that you are in control. And Lord, if there would be opportunity to speak that to one another in those broken relationships, that we would do that. That we would be reconciled, not for our, uh, our satisfaction, but for your glory, that we would be able to point to a God who does what only God can do. Lord, I pray that today we would see uh, not not only Joseph, but even more so Jesus. That the work that you have done on the cross, Jesus, would be so uh, deeply embedded in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds that we would respond with gratitude, that we would be generous with our lives, that we would give you great glory. God, that we would be worshipers. That that worship would overflow into telling everyone about who you are and what you've done. Thank you that you're doing that in us and to us and through us. Thank you that you are a good God who saves and rescues by sending his son to be the payment that we couldn't pay, to give us a righteousness that we could not obtain ourselves, Lord, even as we move into a time of communion, may we remember may we remember that your wrath was poured out on your son so that we would not have to receive that wrath, but instead we walk in the righteousness of Christ today. Lord, we rejoice and hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.